What's up, everybody? This is your host, Scott Melker, and you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Every week, I'm talking to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, politics, and basically anyone else with an interesting story to tell. So sit down, strap in, and get ready, because we're going deep. Let's go. I'd like to thank my sponsors, Round the X and Voyager, for making today's episode possible. We'll hear much more about them later on in the episode. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Do you want to know how institutional and big money moves in the digital asset space? Are you curious as to what's happening in the Asia market, especially in China, where crypto seems to be alternately embraced and banned on a regular basis? When it comes to world events in finance, today's guest has literally seen it all. Not only was he an investment banker through the Great Recession, but he made the move to digital assets early and designed and implemented a wide range of trading platforms that have redefined the space. Dave Chapman is the executive director of BC Group, which is Asia's leading public technology and digital asset company. In his role there, he runs OSL, which is Asia's leading digital asset platform. I'm so excited to welcome Dave to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Hey, Scott. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a challenge when guests are on the other side of the world to find a, a time that works. So I know it's like first thing in the morning for me, for, for me and somewhat late at night for you. So I'm glad no, maybe we're both yawning. That's right. I, mean, <laughs> I, I will never stop yawning as long as I have kids and I'm stuck in the house with them. So uh, that's inevitable for me. So first, can you give us the quick background on BC Group and OSL and, and your role there? Yeah, most certainly. And again, thanks for having me on, on, on the show this morning. Um, so BC Group is Asia's leading public technology and digital assets company. Uh, it's a main board listed Hong Kong stock exchange company. Um, and OSL is the, is the digital assets arm. Um, OSL is um, Asia's premier institutional gateway to digital asset capital markets. It provides a number of different core uh, businesses, but we, we predominantly fo- focus on uh, our brokerage platform. So when we talk about brokerage, it's not so dissimilar from traditional financial brokerage services. So we offer OTC trading, uh, systematic RFQ, um, uh, over-the-counter options, um, and, and, and a various suite of other products. Uh, we also offer an exchange product. Um, we also offer uh, digital asset custody. Uh, we were actually the first in Asia uh, and second in the world to be afforded uh, insurance on both hot and cold wallets. And then finally, uh, we wrap all of those three core services, the brokerage, the exchange, the custody, uh, with a software as a service white label solution. So we actually provide uh, technology to others uh, globally. So if someone wants to operate an exchange or someone wants to operate a brokerage or, or similarly a custody service or a combination of all three, um, using our technology, we can very quickly uh, stand uh, an instance up uh, and, and brand it as, as, uh, as, as your own. Um, and that's really uh, that's really the the, the core uh, list of our services. I've actually been down the OTC rabbit hole a few times, uh, attempting to help facilitate large Bitcoin purchases off exchange. And every time we ended up hitting a brick wall because either one car- party was completely full of it or someone panicked at the last moment due to security. It was sort of like a game of chicken over, you know, you show me yours, <laughs> you show me yours and who, who do it first. Can you offer insight into the over-the-counter market and how the big players are buying and selling Bitcoin? 
Yeah, I mean, so with respect to what you first started saying, as in you know whether or not the the deals that you hear about are, are legitimate, you know, we at OSL that the trading desk refers to those type of deals as unicorns because they quite you know quite simply they a lot of the times that they don't exist. Um, from from our perspective, um, we you know for all of our services, we we shy away and don't really service a, a retail demographic. Uh, from our perspective, we focus really on professional and accredited investors, funds, family offices, asset managers, private and investment banks. Um, that being said, uh, we do definitely service uh, you know what you'd call a large ticket, uh, aka wows. Um, it's not uh, so um, unfamiliar for us to service you know in the you know five or, or, or six digit numbers in terms of, of the size of the Bitcoin trades uh, that we do facilitate. So it's not uncommon for someone to offload 10,000, 20,000 Bitcoin for us and uh, at the desk will uh, do their best uh, to facilitate, liquidate or acquire uh, in a manner that doesn't move the market. Uh, so they, 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 the, the, the institutional whales and the institutional um, participants do exist. And it's really uh, the service that, that we facilitate. And so there are a lot of other uh, OTC services or there are a lot of other competitors who claim they do OTC. Um, I mean, the, the easiest way to qualify uh, someone would be to say, do you operate 24 by 7? Um, you know, what sort of market capitalization do you have to provide some legitimacy and credibility to the participants you serve? Uh, who is your auditor? Do you provide insured custody? Uh, can you facilitate multi-million dollar transactions and settle within the hour? Uh, if you can tick all those boxes, uh, they're doing a tremendous job uh, because it's something that we've been working towards for a number of years and uh, it's, uh, it's no easy feat. Well, you just touched on this. Uh, you said that you have to service these orders without effectively changing the price. How does OTC or how do OTC transactions not affect the price on an exchange or how do they affect the, the price that we see as retail traders on an exchange? <laughs> Sure, Scott. Um, it's a very good question. So for us, we have a, a number of avenues that we can actually uh, use to either acquire or, or liquidate a very large position. So we can either naturally match the orders uh, with a, an order of the opposing side. That would probably be the, the, the best execution and, and um, the best uh, outcome, not something that's always readily available when you're dealing in such uh, large ticket sizes. Uh, and so the guys and, and the girls on the desk do actually have a, a number of tools that they can facilitate, whether that be algorithmic trading, smart order routing and whatnot. Now, that being said, um, you know, if the order is large enough, uh, regardless of how you do execute, uh, there will be times when the market does move and, and naturally uh, retail investors and retail traders will see that on, on retail exchanges as well. That's really interesting. So you're definitely the guy to ask this question that everybody wonders and has wondered for years. And just, I guess, bluntly put, is institutional money heavily in crypto and are they interested? Okay, sure. Uh, so it's a narrative that's been used for a number of years, and so I'm, I'm glad you asked the question because usually when we when when I talk about institutional uh, participation, I'm sure some of your listeners would, would probably roll their eyes as a result of, of this narrative being used for a number of years. Um, you know, coming from investment banking uh, and, and leaving the space in 2013 to focus on uh, building crypto businesses uh, since then, uh, it's it's been an interesting journey. Uh, when I did first leave investment banking, uh, I think a lot of my my peers thought it was a, 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 a comedy moment uh, and that I was losing my mind to leave a respected career to go and play with magical internet money. But it's been an interesting uh, phase or interesting journey since then, Scott. You know, in 2013, Bitcoin was very much disregarded. They saw it as a fad um, and this wasn't something that was going to, to, to be around for very long. 
uh, over the over the next couple of years, we saw the narrative change from Bitcoin is is bad to blockchain good, uh, and then we we saw blockchain was was something that was, uh, you know, undoubtedly one of the most overhyped technologies uh, since big data and, and cloud computing. Uh, and then finally, uh, as we're seeing now, is we're see, starting to see uh, true institutional adoption and the, the, the blockchain narrative is, is starting to diminish. And the real uh, push now is how do we, um, how do we participate in a, an asset class with these public blockchains now that they're being globally recognized and that, that regulation uh, and regulatory clarity is coming into play? And so there's no denying uh, that we are seeing um, interest. Uh, we are receiving inquiries from uh, the likes of private investment banks who they want to know how to route orders to our desk. Um, they want to know what types of technology that we can offer to facilitate uh, their consumers the ability to enter the crypto market. And interestingly, but probably unsurprisingly, um, no matter what the inquiry uh, originates as, it very quickly turns to custody. You know the the reputation uh, in the you know in the crypto space uh, for managing and and holding uh, customer funds in a secure way uh, or in a secure manner rather is is woeful uh, and that's what scares a lot of people away. I think there's two main reasons why uh, you haven't seen faster true. Uh, institutional and, and traditional finance adoption, and those are twofold. Uh, one is the lack of regulatory regulatory clarity, uh, and we're seeing that um, become more clear and uh, more black and white in a number of jurisdictions, including in Asia. And secondly, the lack of uh, of quality custodians. Okay, in traditional finance, you you have traditional custodians like State Street, um, and whilst things are improving uh, in the crypto space, uh, for the longest time you have not had uh, a quality custodian. And by quality, I, I mean, you know, something that is audited, uh, provides insurance uh, on both hot and cold wallets and, and whatnot. And we're starting to see quality custodians in the crypto space emerge, even outside of, of OSL. Uh, you know, you're seeing the likes of, of other investment banks that are really starting to look at how are they going to participate in this space. And for us, that, that's very exciting. And it should be very exciting for everyone in this space, to be honest. So uh, does that imply that there are a lot of uh, banks, family offices, or, or other institutions, what have you, who are looking very closely, but still it doesn't fit their risk management strategy or they do a risk analysis and they just can't trust that their funds will be secure. So basically like we need a little more regulation and we need a little more security and then they're going to come in. The, I think it's fair to say that the, the funds for the majority of the funds that we do service, they are crypto um, focused funds uh, and we do service a, a number of private banks. Uh, we are definitely vetting and fielding uh, inquiries on a very regular basis uh, with a number of, of uh, you know, uh, bulge bracket uh, investment banks uh, who are, you know, looking at this space with great intent. Uh, some of those uh, have, uh, you know, have started to um, materialize those inquiries and, and, and whatnot. Uh, but for the most part, there's still a lot of people uh, interested in this space. Um, and I think that that's, that's growing um, with momentum as a result of, of the regulatory clarity and the, the licensing and, and, and the quality custodians that, that, that are starting to emerge. That makes sense. I, I mean, I'm reading through your resume and you touched on this earlier. I mean, as you said, you were in a very comfortable position working as an investment banker. I mean, we'll go through, I guess, some of the th experiences that you had later, but you did make this jump to internet, you know, magical internet money as people joked. I mean, what initially drew you and, and, and really made 
you decide to you know, go into the digital asset space and to, to make a bet on a nascent asset like Bitcoin? Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit of a, of a story. I first discovered Bitcoin, I think, in around late 2012. Um, at the first time, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to to come across it. I think I was quite quite mystified and, and quite um, confused as to, to what it really was. It wasn't until probably early 2013 when I started looking into it further um, and went down that, that rabbit hole. Um, you know, I'd, I'd come from a, a very technology uh, centric background, um, had started, you know, computer science at a, at a young age and, and whatnot. Um, it also come through the, you know, the peer to peer file transferring um, era with eDonkey and Napster and, and what else. And I think from my perspective, I was most uh, drawn to the, the, the decentralized nature of it. But that being said, um, you know, the elements of it were, were also quite scary. Um, you know, the, this was the first time the world had ever uh, experienced or had been unleashed to a decentralized technology, something that, you know, really couldn't be shut down. Um, and so there were, um, you know, and the initial thoughts of, how, well, you know, what happens and if it can't be shut down, is that going to have... Uh, negative connotations or is it going to have um, the ability to do bad things? Uh, but that being said, um, you know, for me, uh, the ability to transfer value from one person to in, in the world to any other individual in the world, 24 hours a day, seven days a week without any, you know, any, any intermediary, uh, that was for me the, the most compelling argument. You know, I, you know, there are times when I've answered this question and I've talked about financial inclusion. I think that's a, I think that's huge. Um, whether it's Bitcoin is going to solve that problem or whether it's, you know, something else that, that comes in its place. Um, for me, um, for all of those reasons, it was enough for me to say, you know what, um, investment bank isn't going away. Uh, let's go and try something else. And so I was very fortunate to also have uh, two others uh, with similar backgrounds who, who wanted to go try something uh, a little bit crazy. Um, and so the three of us left and, uh, and this is where the, the journey has ended up for us. So you were a true believer. I mean, you actually uh, made the move because you believed in the use case and in you know financial inclusion. Which is interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, I, whether, I was a, whether I was a true believer, I wanted to have a bit of fun. I, I think they probably, I think there was an intersection of those two things at some point. Um, I don't think, you know, a lot of people that I was meeting back in 2013, um, you know, in, including, you know, the likes of Roger Veer and, and, and CZ and, and, and others. I mean, you know, meeting these guys in, in China and in Singapore and, and Japan and, and whatnot, you know, I'll be I'll put, I'll be the first to put my hand up and say that I don't think we saw it being as um, adopted or maybe not adopted, but I guess from my perspective, I as much as I wanted to believe and I was a, I was a believer to to some extent, um, I will I'll, I'll put my hand up and say we I don't think we saw it appreciating in value in in as rapid as it did and as quickly as all of that occurred and matured, um, and obviously you know a lot of the original positions and a lot of the um, original stances um, of what we had has changed. Um, you know, when we first started doing business, it was a, a retail exchange. It was one of the first, if not the first exchange in Hong Kong, providing, um, you know, the ability to buy and sell Bitcoin uh, for, for retail uh, traders. Um, and as we've grown and or, or more so matured and outgrown some of these these businesses, um, you know, obviously our focus right now is to facilitate, uh, you know, the, the institutional space and, and getting back to, you know, the way I, I first started answering this question with respect to, you know, our view has changed. You know, at the end of 2017, uh, we had a very successful, um, profitable, uh, privately owned business facilitating some of the world's um, largest flows in, in Asia uh, with a very successful OTC trading desk. Um, and we had the fortune of, of 
you know, taking a step back, um, taking a breather and saying, okay, well, what is going to be required next uh, to provide even further legitimacy and credibility to the counterparts that we were servicing at the time? And, you know, at, the, at this time, at the end of 2017, there, there was no regulatory clarity really anywhere. Uh, you had the New York Bit license. You had the Japan that was regulated, but very much a, a Japan-centric license. You had some of these licenses also appearing up in the lights of, you know, Liechtenstein and, and other sort of lesser um, known uh, jurisdictions around the world. Uh, and so for us, we took the opportunity uh, to say, well, if we're going to focus on institutional players, and we b do believe institutional adoption uh, will take place in this space, uh, what is required to actually, uh, you know, set yourselves up and, and facilitate such flows and, 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 uh, and to be able to onboard and counterpart and, and provide a very legitimate um, and credible service. And, and for that reason, uh, that's why we, we entered and we took controlling stake of the, the main world listed company on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange called BC Group. And then we built an entirely new digital assets arm underneath uh, the, the parent company called OSL. And so if you look at what we've achieved to date, um, you know, there are very few firms in this world uh, that operate in, in digital assets or virtual assets or crypto uh, that are you know, main board listed, um, that are you know, big four audited, uh, that do provide full crime and, and, uh, and specie insurance on, on a custody solution. And really, Scott, the, the icing on the cake for ourselves was in, you know, in the sweet spots that we operate in, uh, primarily being Hong Kong and Singapore, um, whilst going through it, that, that journey to put all of those stepping stones in place, we were very fortunate to have innovative regulators in both Singapore and Hong Kong who have since come out um, and provided some very clear and very innovative licensing uh, around virtual assets, of which we're uh, currently in the process of, 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 of going through, the, of going through the, that journey as well. Uh, can you talk about how that regulatory clarity has changed since 2017? It's funny because if you're on the outside looking in, and I know Hong Kong is sort of its own uh, its own space, but you know, as I touched on in the intro, when you see the news about China, it seems like one month everything's banned, they're shutting down miners, and the next month they're talking about their own digital currency and hyping Bitcoin. So it's, you know, from the outside, it's a very confusing to, to, but it sounds like you're on the inside and know what's actually happening. And, and it sounds like you're saying that there is a lot more clarity now, which I think uh, most people wouldn't have expected. Can you uh, sure. talk about that? Sure, most certainly. I mean, China is um, an extremely uh, difficult uh, region to navigate from a, a regulatory perspective, especially when it comes to uh, to crypto. Um, and and you, you rightly state, Scott, that you know since uh, 2013, um, we've seen China ban Bitcoin uh, and crypto a number of times. And but then, as you say, also there are conflicting reports as to how you can operate and and, and whatnot. For ourselves, uh, you know, we we largely don't service uh, China as a, as a region, uh, mainly because of the. the, the you know, whilst it sounds ambiguous, uh, still clear stance that um, it's it's a, it's a no-go zone um, for a lot of the services that, that we provide outside of China. Uh, in Hong Kong, uh, the Securities and Futures Commission uh, at the uh, the closing end of 2018 uh, announced uh, or proposed a sandbox to um, to facilitate and uh, to, to potentially uh, license 
uh, digital assets in Hong Kong, um, and uh, they they are looking at providing licenses for um, a brokerage um, for uh, exchange activities and and for funds for asset managers. Um, and so we're still. Uh, I was actually about, actually about to say that we haven't yet seen a virtual asset license uh, actually uh, issued, but that's not true. Uh, about a fortnight ago, uh, the uh, SFC, the Securities and Futures Commission, which is uh, unsurprisingly by name the equivalent to the US's SEC, uh, they issued the first virtual asset license for, um, it was a type 9 asset manager uh, fund license. Uh, and so that's pretty positive given the fact of uh, what we're seeing in Hong Kong with corona, uh, that, that they're still uh, pushing ahead and issuing these virtual asset licenses. So uh, we're pretty uh, we're pretty. Um, optimistic in, in both uh, Hong Kong and in Singapore. And I think it's one of those, as I said before, it's one of those, you know, stepping stones that, that a lot of, you know, traditional finance, um, especially especially already existing licensed participants need uh, or would see as a requirement before entering into a crypto space. They, they really want to see, okay, are you licensed to, to perform this activity? Uh, you know, do you provide uh, insured custody? Okay, who who are you audited by? What is your balance sheet? Uh, these are all, you know, probably uh, things that or, or, or attributing factors that not a lot of people in uh, in the crypto space uh, consider when when thinking about entering, but when you're starting to deal with institutional investors, traditional finance, these are all very very plain vanilla questions that need to be answered, need to be achieved, uh, frankly, prior to them even considering to uh, enter this space. Roundlyx.com is one of my favorite companies in the entire crypto space. What they do is they take all your small purchases and they round them up to the nearest dollar and invest that money into any of 25 crypto assets of your choice. They integrate with your favorite exchanges so that you can round up into different assets all at the same time. And they do this all without ever holding any of your Bitcoin. This is by far the best way to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. You'll never even notice that the money is gone from your account and you'll look up one day and hopefully you'll have made thousands and thousands of dollars on crypto. Go to roundlyx.com and use the promo code WOLF for $4 of free Bitcoin after making your first roundup or purchase. That's R-O-U-N-D-L-Y-X.com and code WOLF for $4 of free Bitcoin. Are you sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto, and it's 100% commission free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 30 top crypto assets, and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering 5% interest on Bitcoin and 6% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 6%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play Store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's investvoyager.com, promo code SCOTT25 for $25 in free Bitcoin and start trading today. Yeah, so you said that basically your OTC desk was doing exceptionally well at the end of 2017, which is obviously not hard to imagine considering the the bull run of that year and how that year ended. But, you know, 2017 was a dream, but 2018 was a nightmare, (laughs) at least for for most people who were trading or invested. And it sounds like you were actually building a crypto business throughout that entire bear market when you, you know, purchased BC Group and created OSL. What was that like? Did you ever have 
doubts that maybe your your bet had been wrong, Bitcoin was going to zero, all those things that you heard, or you know, were you still pretty much uh, re- retaining your bullish bias and continuing to build? Yeah, if you speak to anyone that knows me, I'm pretty sure that they say that the Dave is always bullish on Bitcoin. Um, I guess it also helps that you know my co-founders and I, and 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 a large part of the team had been through um, a number of periods where where Bitcoin had retracted, um, and you know we had gone through a number of periods of time when you know things didn't look so positive, um, and you had to you know button down the hatches and 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 go on cost. Um, saving uh, initiatives and, and whatnot during those phases um, on the idea um, and on, you know, the clear objective that, you know, we believe that it was going to come out the other side. And when you've done that two to three times, it really becomes BAU. Um, with respect to building the business during that that, that period, for sure. Um, I, I won't suggest it was difficult. I was very fortunate and we were very fortunate rather having such an excellent team. Um, we do have a very large team. We have around, a, you know, 130 people in Hong Kong. Uh, we're fortunate enough to have have uh, a great team in Singapore and, and, and a great team in Mexico, among other areas. Uh, but it does take a long time, and, and uh, it does come at the at the cost of revenue sometimes. Um, as I said, we we don't focus on and we don't service a retail business. Um, we had the opportunity to you know compete with you know with other venues um, that frankly we're, we're killing it and have killed it and and that's that's you know that's I, I wish them all the best um our goal and our objective is going to take a little bit longer uh to achieve uh but you know the 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 uh the outcome and uh the the goal at the at the end of this journey uh in my strong belief uh, and then in our co- our collective strong belief is going to be a, m- a much larger a reward and a much larger piece of the pie uh simply as a result of the uh the the the, the segment that we were servicing i mean you said you're always bullish on bitcoin i happen to share that assessment i mean i'm just an uber bull, regardless of what happens in the short term, you know, long term, I, I just really believe that we're going to see much, much higher prices and more mainstream adoption. But you, you actually recently penned a Twitter thread on why you believe Bitcoin will reach an all time high in price specifically this year, uh, <laughs> yeah. which, which is maybe even more bullish than me. So can, can you present that case? Why, why you believe that's a possibility? Hey, sure. I mean, I think that was after a CNBC interview uh, that, I, that I posted that on Twitter. And it was just at the time, it, you know, there is just so much positive news uh, coming out um, in this space, specifically around Bitcoin and also being actually, you know, frankly, very fully endorsed by people that I would consider extremely intelligent and, and likely to be uh, right at the time. You know, people like Peter Thiel, uh, Chamath and, and, and whatnot. But I mean, you know, rather than then talk about what was my bullish case back at the end of February, even if we just talk about now, Scott, I mean, you know, we've, you know, by the time this podcast comes out, we'll have either been uh, through the halvening or, 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 or we'll be almost going through it. But I think so, it will know, likely be on that day, actually. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, so, so, it'll be very go. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting with the halvening because this event um, for most people, it's the, it's something that, just creates so much speculation as, okay, what's the price going to do? What's the price going to do? What's the price going to do? For me, uh, it's not uh, exactly the, the yeah, it's, yes, it's going to be interesting. It'll be great to, to, to see it happen. Um, but the reality is for me um, is that Bitcoin uh, just survived one of the largest, if not the largest financial crisis that we have ever experienced in our lifetimes. 
And you did have, you know, the Bitcoin naysayers are saying, oh, look, it's not a store of value. It's, it's not uncorrelated. But the reality is, you know, and they're saying, oh, the Bitcoin price dropped by 50% and, and whatnot. And, you know, at, you know as of today, the, the Bitcoin price has um, recovered since the, the Black Thursday, March 12th event. Mm-hmm. But for, for me, the reason why I'm so, um, you know, sort of optimistic, impressed, uh, but not surprised is that Bitcoin survived this largest financial crisis of our lifetimes. And it did that without any circuit breakers and did that without any government or regulator intervention, no quantitative easing, no economic stimulus. Um, it did that, you know, with, without, without any, it did all that um, to, and to survive. Um, and so for me, you know, Bitcoin chalks this up as just another test uh, another battle scar, um, and it's uh, it's quite an amazing feat. And so, whilst it looked um, volatile, and, and don't get me wrong, it was a, it was a, it was an extremely volatile day um, for our trading desk, and uh, and we did in enormous volumes, like 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 most in this space over that period, and also shook out the weak hands. Um, but uh, for me, um, for it to go through that, and as it has always, it's always come out the other side stronger. And so uh, no matter what happens on the Bitcoin halvening, uh, for me, uh, I'm actually just very optimistic and very long-term bullish uh, as a result of, 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 of this test and every test it's gone through in the past. Yeah, the happening kind of gives me uh, the same feeling as Y2K did. I know that you're, you're old <laughs> enough to experience that, which is like all this speculation and hype about what's going to happen. And, and most likely it'll just kind of, you know, uh, fall short of all the uh, expectations of either of gloom and doom or the or the moon moon boy side as well. But you know, it's going to be interesting to see how exactly. it does play out and people uh, react. So you touched on this here, and I agree with everything you said. But to play slightly devil's advocate, you said there's no QE obviously in in the Bitcoin space, but there are a lot of people. I'm not one of them who would argue that that's Tether's role. And the Tether Treasury, how do you address uh, Tether's role? Yeah, I mean, Tether's got a pretty colorful background uh, <laughs> and it continues to have a very colorful uh, future. I guess, what what is happening there? I mean, it, obviously, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not uh, Tether is, is fully backed. Um, obviously, Tether's had a, um, you know, a volatile history with respect to trying to be audited um, by... Um, it would to provide some sort of transparency and color. Now, mm-hmm. that being said, it's, it's, it, would be, it would be very difficult uh, to audit such a service. And then what's more interesting is that you've currently got competition uh, to tether, you know, with such as PAX and USDC and, and, and others that have tried to take its place with something that's, that's you know, undoubtedly uh, more... Uh, legitimate and, and more credible simply by saying that you know it's audited that it works in a, in a, under a trust uh, structure and whatnot but the you know the, the reality is is that tether remains the king uh, because it, it doesn't have any compliance features uh, you know there is nothing there that 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 uh, you know with some of these other more legitimate stable coins they do have compliance features they do have the ability to lock coins and so when you're talking about the velocity of money and people wanting to move value uh, in an extremely fast manner they don't really want to worry about KYC. They don't really want to have right. to take into consideration what's going to happen if, if something does get locked up. Um, now, does that mean that Tether survives forever? Or does that mean that Tether has um, you know, a, a finite lifespan as to when uh, you will not lo- no longer be able to use it? Now, I know that that's, that's quite, a, 
quite a massive claim. Uh, and I'm not saying that, that that may happen or may not happen, or whether it happens in, in, under what time horizon. I think that there will become a growing um, segment of the market that will turn naturally towards uh, more uh, transparent, credible, legitimate, audited stable coins simply because of the nature of the, the, the regulatory environment that they're working in. Well, we're seeing an all-time high actually in stable coins and, and by a mile, right? Last I read, it might have been a week ago, but there was $8 billion basically sitting on exchange in, in stable coins. I mean, that has to be exceptionally bullish for the space, right? Yeah, I do agree. I mean, it's stable coins are definitely providing um, a number of, uh, of capabilities or a number of functions rather in this space. They do serve a, a very strong purpose. Um, obviously, there's been a, a number of people who have written, you know, or, or, or provided findings and studies saying that, you know, when Tether does print, Bitcoin uh, does increase and appreciate in value. And there is equally just yeah, as many studies money and findings. <laughs> exactly, 100%. But there's equally just as many studies saying that that's not the case. Um, you know, there's a lot of smart people in this um, in this arena. Uh, I guess the, the, the great thing is that, you know, given that all of this happens on public blockchains, uh, I mean, we're all on the, on the same level of transparency, which is a little bit different from, from the traditional, um, you know, finance world where it's behind closed doors. So there, there is that, that, that upside. Um, again, um, you know, is yeah, stable coins definitely do serve a purpose, Scott, um, whether what, what that means for the longevity um, of tether, um, you know, I guess it's, a, it's, let's wait and see. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it's just, it is an interesting like comparison to the money printers, but uh, you operate an OTC desk. You guys are not transacting in tether. I assume you're transacting fiat to Bitcoin, correct? Uh, we do provide, um, facilities to, uh, transact in both, uh, crypto to fiat pairs. Uh, but we also do, uh, provide the ability to do crypto to crypto. There are a lot of, uh, larger players in this space who will not always want to go to or from fiat. Uh, there are uh, participants in the space that will do, for example, very large Whipple trades, and then they will actually uh, see Bitcoin more as a, uh, as a sometimes a store of value than, than fiat. And if you look what's happening with, uh, you know, the quantitative easing and, and the money printing that's going on, I mean, you can't blame them uh, flocking to something, you know, as, as Bitcoin, even given as volatile as it is, uh, to, to move from, from a, a non-Bitcoin asset into a Bitcoin uh, as a result of just, you know, depending on their circumstances. That's interesting because the safe haven narrative asset was huge for years, but kind of untested because global markets were rising and Bitcoin was, was rising as well. So it was hard to see. And then obviously we've talked about the March 12th dump and anyone who was a critic of that um, narrative basically used it as proof that it was not a safe haven. But as you said, in the last six weeks, here we are back above where the price was. So do you, I mean, clearly you have customers who believe that Bitcoin is a safe haven asset. Do you believe that it's an uncorrelated asset and that it can act as a safe haven? Oh, I mean, it's a very good question. Whether I believe, whether, do I believe it's an uncorrelated asset? Uh, you know, I think the dump of the that that of the 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 financial crisis that we've seen as a result of uh, the effects from COVID were largely unprecedented for anyone. Uh, and when you, there's a number of of contributing factors here. Is there any other asset class that offers a hundred times leverage? Um, <laughs> I, I can't really think of any. Four X. Uh, but but the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, is it is it a hundred X? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but the other thing is, is that at the same time. Uh, Everybody's investments and everyone's positions uh, were getting uh, completely uh, hit 
very, very badly. And, and at the same time, people still needed to either cover those positions. So were they, were they selling their Bitcoin or were they getting liquidated? It, does that mean it's uncorrelated as a result? Uh, it's yet to be seen. But, you know, if I talk about uncorrelated assets, you know, as you rightly pointed out, uh, Bitcoin has since uh, recovered and uh, further exceeded the price uh, that it was uh, when, when we had this, this massive 50% uh, dump. Um, so is, does that make it uncorrelated as a result of it being better performing asset than, than anything else in this sector? Or not even this sector, just any sector. In the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it's interesting because you, know, you, you have all these people say, look at it and point at it and say, they laugh at it and say, see what happened then. And I'm like, again, I mean, it, this, it, it survived and it did what it did without any intervention. It just, and it survived and it continued to operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week without any downtime. And if you think about, you know, as of last week, uh, Bitcoin was the best investment in 2020. Uh, sorry, in 2020. And if you remember, it was also the best investment of the last decade. So, you know, from an investment perspective, it's, it's pointing in the right direction. Uh, is it a highly speculative, high risk investment? Sure. Is it a, uh, is it still the world's largest social experiment? Maybe. Um, is it getting <laughs> a regulatory clarity and institutional interest and slowly starting to get adoption in, in traditional finance as well? Yes, it is. So I think that, the, 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 you know, the, the, the name calling around it being a, a social experiment is probably going to have to start to die soon just simply because it has survived. That's, that's the nature of Bitcoin. No matter what gets thrown at it, it just continues to, to thrive. And uh, so, you know, long answer to your question, is it a safe haven? Um, you know, I, you know the, I think the... I, think the, I feel the, pretty the safe same, right now. Well, I, mean, <laughs> I, did, I mean... I didn't in March. <laughs> are you going to... Uh, would you advise your, someone who, you know, is not risk adverse to put their life savings into Bitcoin? Of no, course you don't. No. Okay. Do you use or the any, same or principle? Anything else, or anything exactly. Else. Exactly, Scott. Do you use the same principles? Don't you know? Don't invest more than you afford that you can afford to lose. I mean, and and in, in some respects, diversify. Um, you know, so using those two principles alone, uh, and given the performance to date, uh, even though it's only an eleven-year-old currency. You know, the, the, the narrative starts to change saying, okay, why don't you have exposure to this asset class? Yes, it is volatile, but over the long term and long time holding, it actually outperforms anything else on the planet. How do you not have exposure to this asset class? Right. I mean, Chamath is very famous, obviously, for consistently saying that everybody, no matter how wealthy or poor, should have at least 1% of their, you know, 1% exposure to Bitcoin of their portfolio. Do you agree? I mean, the number doesn't really matter, but I, clearly you agree that everybody should at least be exposed. If you were to allocate 1% of your net worth into Bitcoin, for the vast majority of, of people, um, that isn't, let's say you, you, you allocate 1% of your net worth to Bitcoin. If Bitcoin goes to zero, for the vast majority of people, that will not change their lifestyles. Now, if Bitcoin goes 100x, that's going to make a pretty big, no, it'll make, it'll make a meaningful difference. Um, and I think that that's probably a, a fair way to look at it. I mean, it, you know, again, it comes down to don't invest more than you can afford to lose. Is it a highly speculative asset? Yes. Um, do I agree with allocating 1% of your net worth? Yes, 100% to Bitcoin. Right. Um, and now, obviously, I mean, the situation has even become more clear for that argument, I think, with you know infinite quantitative easing and money printing and all of the stimulus and, and bailouts that we're seeing. 
Um, so obviously everything has now changed globally as a result of COVID. Do you think that that uh, the current circumstances are a bit of a melting pot for Bitcoin? Uh, for sure. I mean, you know, if you look at um, what's been happening uh, during COVID, I mean, I'm not going to you know, pretend that, that you have so many talented economists right now that are frankly much more intelligent and, and, and better and, and, and can better present than me. Uh, so I'm, I'm not even going to attempt to sufficiently provide a view that your listeners haven't already heard before. However, what I will say is that I do believe that the ratio of those who understand the impacts of endless money printing versus those that don't, don't is undoubtedly higher now than ever in, in the history of time. And I think that is a, a really good uh, for, for Bitcoin's case. Um, another observation is that, you know, events such as, as what we're going through now, they have the capability to change um, a person's behavior literally overnight. And so, you know, if I give you an example of this, my parents, intelligent, successful, lovely people have somewhat shied away from using contactless payments at cash registers and service stations, et cetera, because they're part of an aging population who have, up until now, preferred to use physical notes and coins. Now, as a result of this corona and COVID uh, pandemic, that same demographic have opted to finally adopt contactless payments as a result of not wanting to risk catching the virus from, from touching, you know, literally, literally yeah, dirty, dirty cash. Dirty cash. <laughs> dirty cash yeah. And so that, that's, that's a one way transition, by the way, that they won't go back to relying Ever. on physical yeah. cash. Ever. And so my point is that that's one of the countless examples where we've witnessed just how quickly society um, so society's behavior can change. And it's interesting to hypothesize what will be that, that catalyst uh, for society to adopt Bitcoin. And if you look at what's happening right now with Libra, uh, with these you know, central bank issued you know, blockchain type um, coins and, and whatnot, I mean, is that going to be the catalyst point for people to say, okay, I'm on board with these uh, digital currencies and will that be the stepping stone for them to be more open and finally uh, start to adopt uh, Bitcoin. And so time will tell. But I guess my point of that little story was that, that, that things do happen very quickly. You just mm -hmm. generally and sometimes need to find a catalyst uh, for them to occur. Right. I mean, to that end, I think we're also witnessing a massive and growing distrust of governments and central bodies uh, that we've just never seen before. I mean, I really think that people lack trust in their, in their governments now, and mm. they also don't trust the media. They don't trust their government. They don't trust any central body. So that has to also, you know, mean more exposure and potentially higher prices and adoption for Bitcoin. And crypto. It, 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 I mean, I know we're getting a little bit, a little bit away from 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 a Bitcoin podcast, and I apologise to your listeners if hey, that's we're disappointing. We're not at all. No, at all. That's great. But from a, a, a similar to what you just stated, like a glaring observation from my own perspective is the growing distrust of of governments in some countries, um, of health organisations and, and central bodies. Now, if you take into consideration just how blatantly wrong some of the information we all received was. Um, and in some cases contributed to thousands of people perishing. I mean, it's just insane. And for the most part, there was no post acknowledgement about this incorrect leadership or, or messaging. So what does that mean? So in the same way, society no longer believes the media, you know, everything is, is fake news. I actually now see that that's the type of attitude and perception extending further to a growing number of, of governments and central bodies. And, and you know, it, it could be, the perfect storm uh, for one of these catalysts for people to question every single message that's, that's delivered in the future. Now, we've seen, you know, a, a, a catalytic 
um, events happened over the past two decades. We've seen the distrust in the media, as I just stated. We've seen distrust in, in financial institutions. And, and, and unfortunately, for some jurisdictions, we've seen you know, a growing number of countries and their societies now distrust their, their, their governments and central bodies. And so what, what does that mean? Does that mean we all turn into, you know, and an, an, all into anarchists and, and, and we don't need law? Of course not. Um, but I think it does make people wonder and, and question uh, the norm. And so it'll be very interesting uh, what happens there as well. Also, they have to, I think, naturally just start to think of steps to protect themselves if that worst case scenario somewhat plays out with their governments, which obviously we see in the United States all the time with <laughs> gun laws and regulation, and, you know, <laughs> on, the, on the polar ends. But I think, you know, somewhere in the middle, uh, when you cut off the head and tail, uh, you find that there's reasonable people who now have reason you know reason to distrust their 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 governments and the people that they may have trusted before uh, it goes interesting you you touched on libra uh and national digital currencies obviously china has has talked about digitize, digitizing the currency um and that could lead to mass adoption for bitcoin but i think it could also be a, a threat of course now that's taking aside the fact that facebook is one of the least trusted organizations on the planet and is probably not the right person to uh take over money but mm -hmm. when you come to national currencies I, I see it as bullish on one side because obviously it would familiarize people with the idea of transacting digitally opening a wallet all of those things but couldn't that also be a threat to bitcoin or, or a replacement to some degree uh, yeah well i mean it's a, it's a very sound um question scott uh, I guess from from my perspective, Bitcoin is is borderless and global, and so when China is starting to trial, um, you know, it's it's DCEP and 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 whatnot, that's great, and uh, and I, I welcome the adoption, I welcome the innovation. Um, what that means for privacy and and whatnot is a is a is a whole big conversation on its own. But if I'm using, you know, a, a digital one, or I'm using, you know, um, a, a digital USD or whatever else be the case, and I want to send, um, you know, 23 cents to someone in in a remote village in Africa, I'm quite certain, as it stands today, that, that those uh, digital currencies uh, won't facilitate such a transaction. So there's a long way to go, um, and obviously there's a there's an enormous um, there's there's also the, the the contention as to, you know, there's still being a, a, an element of control. Um, who makes the decisions as yeah, to I who mean, I can pay? And, and centralized, and so, of course. Exactly. So there's, uh, there's, there's, I think personally, um, whilst people haven't really uh, seen the need or the requirement for something like Bitcoin, uh, that penny drop moment could actually be um, encouraged or it could actually uh, be expedited as a result of all these digital currencies. So that's I'm actually pretty pretty bullish. I buy that for sure. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your past history because you've seen some crazy things. I mean, you've been mm -hmm. at the epicenter of some of Wall Street's largest calamities, I think it's fair to say. And I believe first probably was when you were at Bear Stearns during the sub subprime collapse, basically the mm -hmm. Great Recession. Can you talk about your time at Bear and, and, and what you saw? Uh, sure. I mean, it's it's not it's definitely not, not all doom and gloom. Uh, I was there when uh, when Bear Stearns collapsed, uh, but it was a fantastic investment bank to work for up until the point that it collapsed uh, the day after Lehman's. Um, I was there when uh, J.P. Morgan uh, purchased Bear Stearns uh, at a at a stock price of, of two dollars per share uh, under the direction of or under the strong uh, 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 strong advice, plead or instruction um, of the government uh, because it was seen as too big to fail at the time. Um, 
a little bit of a life-changing experience for me. Um, I probably haven't seen so men, so many men uh, cry uh, as a result of seeing their net worth uh, completely uh, obliterated um, uh, in in the space of, of, of one evening. Because um, it was in bear stock. Because of yeah, correct. And there's a lot of people yeah. that have taken, uh, you know, the, the, for the work there all the way up until, you know, to senior managing directors uh, for, you know, 30, 40 years. And over the span of their career, they've taken the majority of their annual bonuses uh, in, in stock. Um, and so, the, I mean, it, it, it hurt a lot of people. Uh, fortunately for myself, uh, I was young. Uh, and uh, and I, I guess the, 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 um, the, the irony thing is, the ironic thing was that, that I wasn't taking uh, bonuses in, in, in stock and what I was, I was a consultant at the time. Um, but it was, it's, it's disheartening and it hurt. And I, I feel sorry for the people that were impacted, but you know, it, I mean at the bank, but I also feel very sorry for all the people that were, you know, uh, were impacted out, outside of the bank as a result of all of the subprime, uh, madness that, 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 that went on. Um, you know, you and I had talked briefly about this, Scott, but I, I saw, you know, at, Throughout my career, I've seen this in a number of different banks. You know, I worked for Barclays Capital a number of years after Bear Stearns, and I was there during the the the, the LIBOR rate fixing scandal. Um, and again, it's just you you know these things come to light, um, and it becomes a little bit disheartening. Uh, but at the same time, it, it happens so often um, in traditional finance, especially you know in 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 that period of time that where people just become immune to it. They, they read about it and it makes headlines of the paper, but everyone shrugs. Um, you know, I was working for HSBC when they were fined uh, $2 billion for facil- facilitating $900 million of, of money laundering through Mexico. Yeah, I mean, you were, you were at three of the companies that went through three of the worst affecting uh, I mean, I think the, the, the thing is, I think if you, if you point at anyone's career all been there, in right. investment banking, right. exactly, they've all, they've all been there, right? And then that's the thing, is that, that, that's what it come, comes down to in terms of this immunity. It happens so often that it it makes headlines still, but people just shrug it off. And it's a little bit frustrating when you're trying to do go above and beyond what's required from a KYC perspective, from an AML perspective, uh, from a from a regulatory perspective. You're trying to set new standards in this new digital asset space, and you know people continue to try and point at this you know this this new technology this this new kid on the block and say well you know he's doing something wrong and i'm like come on guys like come on you you honestly think that this quarter of a trillion dollar asset class is 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 contributing that badly to society given you know the the rules that when and the 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 rules that we operate under through traditional finance. So it is, it gets a little bit frustrating, but that being said, um, you know, lead from the front and do the right thing. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, I guess the results will hopefully speak for themselves. I mean, it seems like there are no rules for traditional finance as long as you're the right person, you know, the whole like cronyism versus capitalism argument. Yeah, I think, I, you know, it's not, it's not, I don't want to point. It, I don't want to be too negative. I, I do think it is starting to get better. I do believe controls have have improved. I do believe that there has been much tighter regulation come into effect over the, probably the, the last decade, and 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 also since even with, since when I've left investment banking in in 2013, in the, in the seven years I've been out. So I, I do think things are going in the right direction. But are they going in the right direction fast enough? Are they you know are, are the right are the, are the wrong people still getting you know um, penalised uh, accordingly? To, to, depending on their, on their wrong actions. It's, you know, that's a, a, another debate. 
I mean, you really believe that lessons were learned from, you know, 2008 that uh, are in play now. I mean, it's hard for me to look at it and, and not and not see and not compare the situations given, of course, we have a global pandemic that set it off. But I think, you know, it was uh, just a straw breaking the camel's back, in my opinion. But like the bailouts, the cat, you know, the stock buybacks, airlines. I mean, there are companies that couldn't oper- operate for a week once they went out of business that were huge, you know, yeah. multi-billion dollar companies. Even I know that I'm supposed to have an emergency fund, right? <laughs> yeah, that, and that is wrong, Scott. I mean, ethically and morally, that, that, that shouldn't happen. Um, and, you know, it, uh, you know, why does why are some of these sectors bailed out in the, in the way that they have? Will this, you know, this $9 trillion that has been printed or whatever the, the current high score is, whether that will save the day, what are the implications that's going to have uh, on on society as a result of of just this just this unprecedented crisis, was it the right thing to do? I mean, it, it's just it, there are just so many different questions, and and it's so soon into this saga to see whether or not that those um, were the right decisions made, and 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 whether that 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 will come out the other side. I, I guess it comes back and really drills home that you know, given the uncertainty um, and political you know, sort of also political uncertainty and, and uh, that this is really an environment where something like Bitcoin can thrive. Um, and, you know, Bitcoin has it's been through so many different types of, you know, tests uh, already. Uh, I think that this could be, uh, like I said, a, a perfect storm for, for, for Bitcoin, but time will tell. I certainly hope so. It'll actually be really interesting to see if the stock market has not bottomed yet, if there's more bad news and it drops again, it will be very interesting to see how Bitcoin behaves in that 100% scenario. Agree. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, that's complete conjecture. I try not to get too uh, deeply into that because I end up looking like an idiot generally if I uh, try to make a price prediction or a guess. So, and likewise. So I, I want to pivot slightly. You're the first person that I've spoken to who actually lives in Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, I think many people had the perception that Hong Kong was was struck hard by the coronavirus. But the reality is that Hong Kong was largely insulated and seemingly has eradicated the virus, at least for the moment. Can you talk about how they managed to do this and what your personal experiences have been living in Hong Kong during the COVID-19 pandemic? Sure, Scott. Um, so COVID in Hong Kong. So first, some statistics. So Hong Kong has had 1,041 cases of COVID and only four deaths. So four deaths only. Um, and Hong Kong, right. It, it is amazing. And Hong Kong has not had a local confirmed case of, uh, of COVID-19 in over a fortnight, I think maybe 15 or 16 days. Now, to put that into perspective, you also need to remember Hong Kong has a population of almost 8 million people all living in a country similar in size than that of the city of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And it borders with China. So right now, uh, Hong Kong it, it is undeniably, it's the poster child example of how to deal with a pandemic virus. But th- th- that outcome, it, doesn't, it, it wasn't achieved uh, through luck. You know, put simply at least, and, and at least I'll, 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 my disclaimer is at least in my opinion, it comes down to, to many different factors. But, but in my opinion, the, the two out of the many di- di- differing uh, contributing factors is culture, Okay, society here is for the most part very dutiful and compliant. Mm-hmm. And two, uh, experience. Okay, so both of these contributing factors are, are very contrastingly different in other regions around the world. You know, culturally, 
not many people like what being told what to do, you know, to stay home, don't go out. You Certainly know, not try here. Certainly not here. Not in the U S not in Europe. And, and, and to be honest, it, it comes down to this, 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 it's, you know, that's the culture part. Right. And, but the other, the other, the other, you know, the other contributing factor was experience. You know, Hong Kong had experience with pandemic viruses in the past, for example, SARS and people knew just how serious something like COVID-19 could be. And so they took, they, they, they knew what was necessary to take precautions to, you know, avoid large gatherings, wearing masks, you know, adjusting life as necessary to minimize the risk and to eliminate this horrible disease as quickly as possible. Um, but it's also interesting to note, Scott, that Hong Kong uh, was not at any stage in a lockdown. So, yes, Hong Kong, we did shut our schools. We shut our parks and our gyms and, and whatnot. But shops, restaurants and everything else largely remained open for business. And so it's, it's amazing what is possible and what that contrasting and how contrasting differently um, that, that is made when society understands the risks and is willing to adjust. And for, to me that, you know, that's absolutely fascinating. And so, you know, I guess another interesting, you know, thing to add to note on to now, whilst, whilst Hong Kong has, looks like it has eradicated COVID-19 for now. I mean, the question is what happens next? You know, how do we and the rest of the <laughs> rest of the world, how do we establish international travel? For example, yeah, I was just going to say that, it's it's, I mean, it's, it's only just, eradicated until you let us in. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, at the moment, the, the, we, we still have, um, you know, we are still letting Hong Kong residents back in uh, yeah. from any country in the world. We have a uh, Hong Kong have done a fantastic job of uh, their screening process and quarantining process, and you know, to be honest, Hong Kong should be super proud of of, of what they were able to achieve. Uh, for now, I mean, it's it's there's, there's no silver lining, there's no high five. I mean, but the the um, it's it's going to be very interesting, not only for Hong Kong, of course, for the rest of the world. Is what is the new normal? Uh, how does international travel go back to back to uh, back to normal? How does commerce adjust, and and how does everyone um, how does how does everyone move forward? But it's been. It has been absolutely fascinating um, and it has been, um, obviously, we're very fortunate in Hong Kong uh, to be in the position that we're at. Hong Kong people should be very proud. Well, I have to wonder what the perception of people in Hong Kong is of Europe and Americans and the way that we behave. Um, I mean, maybe you know, gen- I'm a, I'm a- even, even, gen- <laughs> even generally and not just specific to COVID, but I guess specifically. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Hong Kong permanent resident. I've lived here for 10 years. It's the, for me, it's the most, fa- it's the most fabulous place on the, on the planet. Um, but you know, and so whilst I, you know, I can't speak for everyone, I don't think there's, there's anyone that sort of looks at others and suggests that, that anyone did anything wrong. I think it's largely acknowledged that no one for the vast majority of people, they just didn't have experience. They just didn't know how bad this could be and as yeah. a result uh, everyone is now paying the price but shouldn't we have been educated on how bad it could be i mean you guys learned the lesson by going through it but it seems like in a global society everybody should have learned those lessons yeah i mean it comes back down to that what we what we discussed before about the information that we were being told yeah. and what was right what was wrong and you know it, it's extremely difficult uh to make decisions as world leaders and, and health organizations as to what do you what do you do with a virus do you do you shut down the economy full stop and 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 uh and or or do you lean in um it, it, there's a, a number of uh, very interesting um 
you know, I don't want to say experiments, I'll say use cases going on with the way that differing countries are trying to deal with it. And I guess it's, that's the, that the, we come out the other side and, and we get to look at, okay, well, this is how country A dealt with it. What was the outcome? This is how country B de- dealt with it. What, what, what was the outcome for them? Um, and maybe we, you know, globally, we learn some lessons that we can all benefit from um, to make uh, the better decisions uh, when, when and if uh, we ever have to go through something as horrible as this again. Uh, hopefully never again, but this might not be going anywhere itself either. So <laughs> we could be in for a long haul. It certainly feels that way here. Uh, to, to, to go back to, to, to Bitcoin, uh, we touched earlier a little bit on the concept of mainstream adoption. I, in my personal opinion, we don't have it yet, obviously. I think we have mainstream recognition, which is huge. Mm-hmm. I think that it's on the tip of everyone's tongue. Uh, I mean, what is the future outlook for digital assets reaching mainstream adoption uh, how do we get there uh, what are your thoughts are we talking specifically about bitcoin or are we talking about the, I guess the, the wider dig- digital assets digital, I mean, digital, digital assets, assets so, in general the, yeah the spectrum is so large um and you know if we if we bundle in public blockchains like like bitcoin if we bundle in um you know these government issued stable coins and libra and if we also bundle in you know the the future, or you know the the tokenization of of securities and commodities and whatnot. Um, I think it's inevitable. Um, it's, it's it's pretty. Uh, I think it's difficult for anyone to to defend a stance in saying that the adoption of digital assets is not going to happen within the next five to ten years. Right. Now, whether, that, whether 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 that means it's Bitcoin or something else. I mean, I mean, uh, you know the. Comparison by you know that I'm about to provide has been provided by many others. Um, you know it, we're at that 1990 uh, internet zone. You know no one understood what it was. No one really understood or appreciated what it could do, and no one certainly appreciated what applications were going to be built on on top of it. And if you fast forward, uh, you know a mere 10 years, then another, then a 20 years, then another 30 years, no one could have fathomed what was possible uh, back when the internet was finally starting to make it ways uh, to make its ways uh, to, to to consumer adoption. So you think we're you think we're still early, obviously. Very very early, very early, very very early. Um, I think that you know for for Bitcoin, I think it's still early. For for a lot of people are saying that they've missed the boat. I, I still think it's so so early. Yeah, it's I agree. such a small, tiny, limited in supply asset class um, that it has has the ability to to grow immensely. Um, I think will. Um, the Libra uh, in some shape or form or something similar be uh, finally uh, released uh, to uh, the market and will it be successful? I think in some iteration it will be for sure. Um, I mean, you could argue, you you look at what happens in in China with your mobile app payments and and whatnot. I mean, anyone that that says that that digital payments and and e-money isn't successful clearly has never spent, uh, you know, a minute in China. I mean, it's just, it's just insane what happens out there. Uh, so in digital adoption, I'm, I'm, I know I'm giving you a very long answer, Scott. I think digital, no, uh, digital, uh, you know, digital asset adoption. Uh, it's it's for me, it's uh, it's a foregone conclusion, and it's it's a given, 100%. How long it takes and uh, what will be adopted first is still yet to be seen. Uh, but obviously, from our perspective, uh, we're very bullish on on all of the categories of gov- above, whether it be public blockchains like Bitcoin, whether it be security tokens, uh, the ability to tokenize and uh, equities or, or whatnot, and to complement 
traditional uh, capital raising measures or whether it's these uh, these government issued stable coins and and, and whatnot uh, for us uh, our firm is 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 uh, very bullish on all of those and as a result we're building out all of our infrastructure around them awesome well to that end where can people uh, keep up with you personally and follow what uh, you guys are doing as a company Sure. So if you want to follow uh, OSL, uh, we've made that very easy for you. Uh, the, uh, the URL is osl.com. And uh, if you uh, want to hear some more of my rambling and my thoughts, uh, I, uh, I, I tweet somewhat infrequently on Twitter. Uh, and my handle is I am Dave Chapman. Yeah, you need to tweet more. <laughs> you, you definitely take the cake uh, when it comes to tweeting and the, your tweets are always on point scott so uh, well done i do enough for everyone <laughs> <laughs> for, for 10 people well thank you so much this has been really really enlightening and uh, i i definitely personally learned a lot and it's nice to hear your perspectives because I, I agree with so much of, so many of them and it, it gives me a hope that maybe i'm on the on the right track <laughs> i think that a lot of people uh, listening will probably feel that way as well so thank you so much for for taking the time and uh, look forward to seeing what you guys have in the future scott thank you very much and also uh thank you for uh, your listeners uh, listening to this podcast i appreciate it Let's go. hey everyone thanks for listening new episodes go live every tuesday at 7 a.m eastern standard time links to our apple and spotify channels are in the show notes you can also follow me on twitter at scott melker to continue the conversation see you next week <laughs>